This podcast is supported by Siemens, your partner for industrial grade AI. everybody and welcome to a new episode of our industrial AI podcast. My name is Robert Weber and I have the honor to talk to Peter Sieber. Good morning, Robert. How are you? Good morning, Peter. We had a wonderful weekend because we had a wonderful event together with Professor Sepp Hochreiter. We spent a day in the monastery in Würzburg and talked with a lot of leaders of C-level leaders about industrial AI. What are your monastery. impressions, Peter? Monastery. Why were we in a monastery? Yeah. We were <laughs> in a monastery because it's very nice there. It's a, it's a conference place, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, in the city where you live in Würzburg. Yes. And you found it as a place. I'm not, not sure, actually. Are there still... Uh, let's say Christian people living there and practicing. Yeah, or? in Germany there are still <laughs> Christian people living. Peter, no, no but uh, in the you, you know, uh, yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, there are still people who live in a monastery. I, I'm, I'm missing the maybe it's the monks or the monks. Yeah, I mean, there yeah. are there are male and and female. You know, that's how I meant to describe it. Christian people. Yeah, they are but still there. But we didn't see them. So there's a, a separate uh, path there. Where we had our conference, yeah, it was great. It was uh, it was so interesting, right? We had uh, what did we have? Around twenty decision makers, I guess. Sure. Yeah. Um, industrial companies, machine builders. We had injection molding, robotics, the general PLC, automation, car components, and all the people that we had here. And most of you, by your invitation, because you know most of them, um, you know, all very interested in um, in discussing, wanting to discuss AI opportunities with Sepp Hochreiter. Yeah, I can drop some names, maybe. Sure. Yeah, we we had guests from Trumpf, from Bosch. From Arburg, from Siemens, Siemens Energy, uh, Beckhoff. So we have very, very interesting discussion with these guys. Yeah, I was uh, very grateful on this day where, because yeah, I think it's very, very important that we discuss this topic from different point of view, from the PLC point of view, from a Bosch point of view, from a machine building point of view. I think that's very helpful. Right, and then it looks like we'll come to that um, later on. But it looks like we're gonna use this uh, as a basis for you know for for starting something like an industrial AI uh, interest group. So, but we'll come to that later. Yeah, what we could, what we should maybe do is share with our listeners the the topics uh, that we that we talked about. Um, and uh, what I'm going to do, there was another event. It was a very busy week last week. There was a, a two-day uh, machine learning week Europe, and I moderated the uh, Predictive Analytics World Industry 4.0. That's one of the four conferences that was there. So what, what I'll do if we talk about, and maybe you and I talk a little about the different topics and what we did around them, I will make links to what we did in Berlin as well, yeah. uh, just for our listeners to take away. So so one, one topic was that the guys wanted to know how big models or foundation models are working or work and which role foundation models like Gato 
play for smart machines or industrial application. I think that was very interesting because also Zep talked a lot about the, the foundation models, the big models, and how to use these models. The people were very interested in this topic. Yeah, it's the thing that we discussed with them before already. The, I think the link was made to to say we, we should not concentrate. And anyway, we don't have it in our hands. I mean, today there's uh, how many? Maybe five, maybe in the meantime already 10, uh, even one or two European um, companies, you know, uh, that uh, deal with these huge uh, so-called foundation models. You know, these organizations, they do what, what they want to do anyway. So the point is if we can use what they do now but having said that um to put it into two sentences we need to always be aware that these models that typically uh, have been built around you know scraping the internet right and for that reason they are full of bias they're full of uncertainty um, and we're going to need to find a way to do some certification maybe around them. And, and then the discussion was we need, uh, in addition to the foundation models, we need a smarter model. So I, I believe that, that is work that uh, Zep is uh, uh, putting effort into as well. Yeah, and Zep also, also spoke about the uncertainty, and this is a topic for, for the science to go in to these foundation models and to solve this uncertainty for companies. I think that was very interesting because it is, that's a new focus for, for scientists in industrial AI. The other was uh, new business models, of course, with uh, machine learning models, a topic uh, we discussed with um, Fabian Bowser from uh, Beckhoff, uh, who was there as well. Uh, at the Poor Industry for the Dough in, in Berlin, we had many presentations. They were including the topic of, you know, what can we now do with data? That's a conference for data scientists. Uh, we had, for example, Oliver Bracht. We had Oliver in our podcast. That's already a year or two ago from IOTA. Um, and he was talking about uh, Trumpf, about their paper part facilitated by data and data science. And, you know, Trumpf was uh, with us in the monastery as well. Yeah, and Zepp was very impressed by the Trumpf approach, I think, because he always tells the people, get in contact with your customers, stay in contact with your customers, learn from your customer, and he compares it to to Facebook or to Meta and Google they or Amazon, they always have the direct contact to the customer. And in the machine building uh, industry or industrial environment, we do not keep this direct contact to our customer. And he was very impressed what, what Jens Ottnard from Trumpf presented and what he talked about. And um, I think there, there, there's something coming between Jens and, and Zepp, I think, yeah. Okay, looking forward to it. Yeah, what, what Oliver mentioned, that was in Berlin, but just to, to, to make the picture there that was very interesting, is that he was saying that Trumpf started with a vision. I don't know the exact year, but it was like uh, almost something like t almost 10 years ago. They had this vision to do something with data. And we know, you know, some of the people at uh, Trumpf still family-owned, right? You know, Trumpf is one of those hidden champions. And for those listeners that haven't heard of them, you know, they're probably the number one laser cutting tool machine 
uh, equipment provider, right? And it's hidden champion because if you're in that market, every, you know them, you know, everybody knows them. If you're not in that market, you ha must have not necessarily heard of them. But what is probably different between Trumpf and even many of the other big companies, you know, of course, um, the other ones like the Siemens and Bosch and everybody, they have their strategies as well. But what's very interesting, they have a long-term strategy that uh, Oliver and I guess others internally, externally, that was another thing he talked about, that they have been working towards, you know, and then they were capable, I think it was already three years ago, that they announced their, you know, pay per part um, Mm -hmm. I think one more topic in our discussion was design space exploration. That was very interesting because I do not think about that topic in our in our meeting. Um, it was very nicely put, actually. Uh, also, the um, the terminology uh, driven by by Boris, I believe, right and. Uh, I think the lead example that we have in that space is from medicine, you know, is from, from DeepMind, AlphaFold. Um, without going into the details, I think we talked uh, talked about their solution before, uh, which which gives people designing uh, medicine the opportunity to kind of, you know, do things, let's say, 10 times as fast. And, and, and I think it's not uh, unrealistic to say, you know, in the past we were waiting, whatever, 10 years maybe for a specific medicine. Now, of course, as we had COVID, the, the complete world was looking for solutions. But then after, what can we say, after a year, maybe roughly, um, there was a solution, maybe already partly, maybe not yet completely, with using the similar technology. Yeah, it was very good. Um, that is so. That's the example we have in the in the in the medical world. And the question then is, what can we do with design space exploration in industrial AI? And Zepp uh, he shared um, an example for Zalando for the the shoe company that's based here in Germany, right? E-commerce company, uh, it's e right? Company. Started with shoes, I believe, and, and now have uh, all kind of fashion. Is that right? Um, yeah. I'm not. It's an e-commerce company, guy. I think. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Uh, but also he gave bridge uh, design. And, and I've actually been talking myself when I do um, trainings, data science, um, AI trainings. Uh, when I was studying and I finished my, um, my computer-edit architecture design at that time, we started with uh, automating the design process. And that was divided between, on one hand, visualization, That's what I was concentrating on. At that time, they were wireframe models. You know, they, you could look through them completely. It was so such a real start. And on the other hand, they were my colleagues. They were more from the mass. They were doing the optimization, more the mass-based. Now, today, you combine the two in the design space exploration, but also in the generative design. So you almost like, so you tell your typically reinforcement learning, I assume um, algorithm, what it is that you're looking for. So you give the spec, your features, one, two, three, four, five, square meters, size, color, etc., And then your algorithm will come up, number one, with both the visualization and you know that the designs that you get, that they abide by the requirements list. And that's the interesting thing, right? I think 
um, we're going to see, we are seeing uh, these days and the next couple of years, a huge shift in the use of AI in in product uh, and services design. When we discussed this topic at the event, I had to think of monolith AI from our, I think, three last episodes about DALI. And I, I thought about the interview I did with Kay Snook from, from University of Amsterdam and Qualcomm Lab. We will publish it in the next weeks because that's really the point. Yeah, Monolith AI, deep vision, using deep vision topics together with DALI. I think this combination is very, very interesting. Is the, uh, because I haven't heard it yet, the one that you did with Case from Amsterdam, I think this isn't not about uh, data literacy. So you're going to have um, uh, an AI um, that is capable of skimming through millions of documents. In the case of uh, Arborg, uh, who was referring to your, oh no, that was the Cavallucci, right? It was Denis from, from Strasbourg, yeah. I'm mixing those two up. Sorry, I'll come to that one in a second. Uh, yeah, no, but you are you're perfectly right. It is uh, that that's exactly the example of um, of monolith there. Yeah. Uh, design space uh, exploration was one. So let's stick then with the one maybe with the data literacy one. That was the other one that uh, you had an interview with with uh, Professor Cavallucci the last week, I believe, and that was referred to by um, by Arborg. And that's another topic that we talked about. And it was looked at, at, you know, how can we use this? And I think the specific example was uh, for patents, but it can be for any other kind of uh, information. So that was more discussed in general, uh, I think, which was also a topic that then came up in Berlin again. There was a separate uh, Machine Learning Week Europe for Healthcare. And that's where they discuss topics like disease prediction, but also the manufacturing and distribution of uh, COVID vaccines uh, and e about this data literacy. So that's where the topic is also very clear at the time where hundreds, thousands of companies were doing research in, you know, in designing, coming up with a, a vaccine for COVID. It's impossible to read all of that. So they were using at that time already AI to skim through these hundreds of reports every day. Peter, do you want to do this again, this, this event? Uh, yes, most certainly. Most certainly. I'm looking forward to and uh, we hope and, and we believe that, yeah, if not all, but the majority of the people that were there together with us, and not everybody could actually join. We are still in in COVID mode, uh, we had a handful of people that could not join. And, and and we believe, right, that most of them are very interested in in joining us. And as I suggested before, you know, we're thinking of, of starting something like an industrial AI uh, interest group. Um, you know, yes, you know, Sepp told us he's very, very happy and very interested to do this kind of thing, like two times a year with us. So they will be the highlight activities. And maybe in between, you know, those are going to take part in that interest group. Maybe they will be inviting the other um, members uh, to their place and show them what it is that they're doing with industrial AI. It, I think it's very important to have this discussion at the coffee break to discuss a topic uh, on AI. You need an input like from, from Zep. 
very interesting input and then the discussion will go on at the coffee break and we had a wine ceremony at, in the evening. So I think that's the most important thing to, to get together, to have uh, a good discussion and you can't have this uh, when you have an online event or something. Yeah, uh, yeah that was... Uh, yeah, that was it. Was an amazing week from that perspective for both for the for the Friday seeing you know twenty persons together and exchanging ideas uh, over coffee and later on uh, by um, a Franken Franconian uh, wine and that was the same in Berlin. It was the first time that again it were two days of what two hundred uh, data scientists exchanging ideas and and you could really feel that. Um, you know, that people were really, really looking forward to be meeting with real humans again after we have been hiding uh, behind screens, um, black screens, so to say. Uh, so, yeah, I think, um, I think this was a, was a great opportunity. There's a couple of other topics that we haven't, but, you know, maybe we'll discuss them some other time. And, uh, yeah, I mean, we, we just discussed this morning that we're going to be sending out um, kind of an invitation to the people uh, that were there. And, you know, that there may actually be a spot or two open. So if, if one of you listeners, C-level decision maker regarding uh, industrial AI, you know, feel free to contact uh, Robert or myself, LinkedIn, or through the show notes. Yeah, and let's let's now switch into the main part of this podcast episode. I think because it was very funny because we had a little present for for Zep, a little book about about uh, Gauss. And in this <laughs> right. episode, you have also a Gauss for us. Uh, you have a company named Gauss, exactly. and you had a very interesting interview with Jonathan Spitz. What was the topic, Peter? Yeah, well, they look at doing OEE improvement, basically. And yeah, I mean, the, the, the name of their company, Gauss, you know, German mathematician, uh, famous for his uh, statistical um, model, you know, refers to the, the idea how they're actually uh, doing this improvement on, uh, on quality, on uh, overall equipment efficiency. So, uh, yeah, it was a great uh, interview. Uh, looking forward to hear it again myself as well. So, enjoy listening to the main part of our podcast. Thank you very much, Peter, for your time. Thank you for, for this wonderful weekend, for this wonderful Friday with Sepp and our guys, industrial guys. And I'm looking forward for the next events. Me as well. Have a good day, Robert. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Dear listeners, welcome to a new episode, AI in Industry. My guest today is Jonathan Spitz. He is the founder and CEO of Gauss Machine Learning GmbH. And I will talk with him today about fast OEE improvement with the help of AI in the metalworking industry. Good morning, Jonathan. Good morning, Peter. Yeah, please tell our listeners a bit about yourself, uh, where you're from, and what do you do at Gauss? Yeah, um, so I'm the founder and CEO of uh, Gauss Machine Learning. I have been living in Germany for about four years now. I'm originally from Argentina, and I have, have been a little bit all over the world. I did my studies in Israel, a postdoc position for a year and a half in France before moving here to Germany. 
Sounds good. And your name that does sound Spitz German uh, is is an original German name or possibly yes. That that's still a, a mystery that I have to resolve. Uh, my, <laughs> really? my my grandfather, uh, well, my my great grandparents emigrated to to Argentina at the beginning of the previous century from uh, Bessarabia in Romania. And when I came here to Germany, I learned that there was a big community of Germans there. So maybe that's the connection. Interesting. Good. Yeah. For those those listeners, a Spitz in German would mean something like sharp, I guess. So there you go. Uh, I had a, my first manager at Inter was sharp, John Sharp. Hello, John, if you're listening. Good. We're not going to solve that mystery today. Uh, Jonathan, uh, tell us a bit about Gauss. You know, all, most of us have heard about this famous German mathematician, statistician, is that the right word? So what would that imply for what you guys do? Can you give us a first quick introduction into your company, please, Jonathan? Yeah, of course. What we do is uh, basically we help manufacturing companies find better settings for their machines. Um, the reason why the company has Gauss in its name is because we use not the typical deep learning approaches, but Gaussian and Bayesian methods. And this helps us be able to find better settings much faster than usual. Okay, sounds good. We'll come to that uh, in a second. And again, I, I guess that most of our listeners have heard about the bell curve. Not sure we get to that later or instead more about Bayesian approaches. Yeah, you already mentioned in more detail of Red that you have helped um, a number of manufacturing companies, I believe, in the metalworking industry producing, uh, quote unquote, 25 to 60% um, faster, all in under one hour. Sounds like that's what I call it, fast OEE improvement. Can you tell us a bit about more about it? Definitely. So um, our software can actually be used for, for many different machines. But right now we have a focus on improving the settings for laser cutting machines and uh, recently also welding robots. So the way that we do this is we can quickly create a new machine and, and the new material within our AI. We then run experiments on the machine depending on how well acquainted our AI is already with this machine. This can be uh, just one or two experiments or, or up to 10. Um, and within these experiments, we figure out the best settings to use for, for that machine and for that material. Sounds almost like magic a little bit, but we'll, we'll get to the details uh, because that's what we're trying to do, of course, is to demystify. It's not magic. It's all about algorithms and, and finding patterns um, in data. So you mentioned, and until now, I was only aware of the uh, laser cutting machines. Welding robots is the next. So does that mean in the near future, you know, you could potentially be moving to other, uh, you know, production kind of machines or even other machines as well? Definitely. Uh, we're doing this quite carefully, I would say. We, we like to have a, a focus because this is what helps us make sure that we deliver the best settings uh, and, and the best solution for each of, of the machines, each of the technologies. We're currently already working towards uh, some, some projects for the machining industry, so still like metal processing but already uh, not, not only sheet metal processing. And we will probably start a project for plastic injection molding as well. 
Okay, sounds great. Now, let's stay just as an example, and that's because that's what you've started with, with the laser cutting machines. Now, the, the first thought I had there, and, maybe, and the first question, therefore, so do you do that independent of the brand of, in this case, laser cutting machines? So, of course, all of us, at least in the German, European, but I believe global market, know one company, one big brand. Uh, you tell us maybe how many exist and do you concentrate on one of those or, you know, would your technology apply to any, you know, later cutting brand? Yes, so the, the strategy strategy that we are following right now is trying to help as many customers as quickly as possible. Um, and in order to do that, we have not tied ourselves down to a single uh, machine manufacturer. Of course, the market itself, so we have quite a few big players, let's say about five players that probably own more than 50% of the market. But then, of course, you have the long tail where we have many, many, many Uh, manufacturing components of, of laser cutting machines. We have so far optimized uh, machines of Trump, Vistronic, Amada, Sengfeng, Prima Power, LVD. So pretty much all of the all of the big companies we have optimized at least one of their machines. And yeah, I guess we'll come to that a little bit more later on. It's it's like trying to understand how easy, how difficult, but it feels almost like uh, relatively easy for you to uh, take your, your, your model out of the different machines, so to say, but we'll come to that in a moment. And then my, my, and thanks for sharing those, you know, sample brand names. And then my question was immediately, but do those brands of, in this case, laser cutting machine companies, not themselves, offer some kind of AI-based, machine learning-based, similar statistics-based kind of solution? And if so, what, what does that mean? So there is, a, there is a potential customer for you. They have brand XYZ, which maybe the brand themselves offer something, but then you offer something as well. So is there, is there like a competitive situation in that case, or how does it work? Yes, definitely. So we know at least from Bystronic, they recently published a new feature for their machines where they can say actively look for better settings. So the machine the machine operator can actively look for better settings with the help of this uh, software. We haven't seen this in, in other companies. Of course, each, each of the big players, they have their own AI research center and they're probably developing similar things. Uh, so far, what, what we have seen is that With, with every every machine that we have optimized, when they're using the default settings that are recommended by the machine manufacturer, they really have a lot of room for improvement. Yeah, so would that possibly mean that, you know, some of these brands are going to say, oh, look at what those guys are doing, you know, we should be doing the same. And other companies will say, okay, you know, obviously those guys have, you know, certain knowledge that we do not have, so... Maybe we want to buy the knowledge we get to that in the end. I mean, if uh, whatever your uh, company's approach is, but or could it be that your technology would end up under, you know, the hood of a certain brand of laser cutting or other machines? Definitely. Um, when you're a small startup, you have to learn how to run between the legs of the giants. And so we see, of course, uh, some benefits of being small. It's that you can be agile and you can be close to the clients and, and really understand what they want. Uh, that, that gives us some advantage. 
And the other thing that we have noticed is that most machine manufacturers, their core competence is in manufacturing the machine and not necessarily, they're not like digital or AI companies. So that, that gives us another advantage. But definitely where we would be happy to work together with, uh, with most of the manufacturing companies, we're currently already working with one of them to integrate our software into their, so integrate our AI uh, component into their software. Okay, I'm sure that many of them uh, are listening to this podcast. So let's see if they're going to contact you. We'll get to the details of how to contact you later on. Running between the legs of a... Oh, sorry. What did I write it down? Say it again, please. Uh, running between the legs of giants. Of a giant. Yeah, I wrote it down, but I couldn't I couldn't um, read my own handwriting. That's a very nice saying. I haven't heard that before. Uh, another claim is um, where you talk about the, you know, effective digitization doesn't have to be expensive, time-consuming, and data-hungry. So, you know, fast. We talked about ROI, maybe as well, or we we get to that in a in a moment again. But we've already learned that the way that you deal for your clients. Uh, goes uh, rather in, in minutes uh, than in months, maybe, or hours than in months. But the third part of the claim is like that you talk about fewer rather than lots of data. Can you uh, talk a bit about that? Yeah, we actually, for, for one of the talks that I was invited to give, I prepared a, a slide where I really wanted to show what small data means uh, compared to, to the normal approach. So usually you have to say to create a digital twin of a machine most of our competitors they gather um, hours or, or weeks of uh, data from sensors of the machine etc so they usually end up with a data set that is in the in the gigabytes of, of data in our case it's not gigabytes and it's not megabytes and it's probably not even kilobytes um, for for this uh, slide that, that i prepared um, i showed one example of an optimization that we did a, a few months ago where we found settings to cut with the machine 60% faster. And all the data that we needed was actually just 120 numbers. Give us examples of those numbers. I mean, those numbers, they are, you know, sensor data, I assume. What, what would they typically be? How does laser cutting work? Laser, I'm going to be very weird and say like laser is like light amplification by stereated emission of radiation. Oh, that's stupid, really. Right? <laughs> For whatever reason, I have that that wonderful acronym in my brain. But but really, you tell us what is the environment of a laser. So, what are typical variables then that make up these you know 120 variables? Yeah. So you you would be surprised actually at how unscientific. Uh, the whole process of optimizing the machine is. <laughs> really? So when we when we run the first first optimizations, the first kind of proof of uh, of technology that we did this together with uh, some of the machine manufacturers, and there it was uh, quite a scientific process. So they have, of course, they have the machines, but they also have all the equipment, like, uh, mechanical measuring devices, digital mechanical devices, microscopes, etc., to actually test how well the, the machine worked when cutting a given metal. When we go to the customers, it's usually just the machine operator and usually not even a mechanical tool to, to test how well the, the cut worked. The way that this works is they get a setting suggestion from our AI, 
uh, that they can just read on a, on a tablet screen or a laptop. Um, they copy those settings into the machine to try uh, making a cut with those settings. And then when the part comes out, they just grab the part, they have a look at it, and they say, so in Germany, Germany that's the Schulnoten system, but let's say it would be like zero to five stars. Uh, the quality of this cut is a four, this is pretty good. Um, or this is acceptable, this is a three. Um, and, and this is the kind of data that our AI gets. For laser cutting machines, usually that's like the only data point, uh, only feedback that we get is like the quality of the part. This is usually connected to the, the burr height, kind of uh, how much residue is left on the underside of the cut. And our AI is able to kind of come to terms with uh, this uh, very subjective data and basically understand what's the connection between the machine settings and how well the machine is working. Right. And in the, the Dutch system where I was raised, it would mean it goes towards an eight or a nine, which is maybe difficult to understand for people who come out of other um, cultures. But give us one, two, three examples. You know, what, what are those variables in the world of laser cutting? So I think of, you know, there's a gas, I believe, right? There's a there's a nozzle, there's a distance. Give us some of those variables so we can get a feeling for, you know, what they are. So there are definitely quite a few machine settings that, that the machine operator can optimize. Most machine operators don't try to optimize all the settings of, of the machine, but they, they focus on a few settings. Uh, this is usually at least the cutting speed um, and can be the, the focus position, so where the laser is focused on the material. It can be the gas pressure, depending on, on which material you want to cut. You have materials of, of different types and different thicknesses. You might also want to play with uh, the power of the laser, kind of not use the 100% of the laser power, but use less. Yeah, you can, of course, take the, the nozzles and, and increase or reduce the distance between the nozzle and the the sheet metal. So there are quite a few settings that you can play around with. Very good. I would have thought anyway, actually, that the machine operator would not, because it sounds very much like the way that you're describing is like the, you know, the, the early age data scientist of, let's say, 20 years ago, who, who would have, you know, all these, you know, points to, to change, right? And which is what we're taking out towards AutoML or whatever. Uh, but sounds very much similar. I would have expected today's machines almost to a lot more automatically and with the help of your technology to recognize what needs to be done. But um, so to at least uh, strongly support your approach, and you may have heard it before, but, but Robert and I, you know, since the beginning, three, four years ago, we've been talking about small data, not really instead of, but very strongly so, I must say, because the story of big data, I've never really believed in. You know, wherever there is big data, there is big data, full stop, that's perfectly fine. Now, if you always need the big data, it's another story, similar to what you say. And I've, we, as I was part of a startup, I've always been reducing you know the the middle size data of whatever maybe a terabyte or a couple of hundred megabytes always like you know up to 100 down to maybe very similar to what you say you know 120 is a lot you know it can easily be maybe 10 of those features that are representative so very strong support towards um, your approach here now 
the question that I'm going to ask next, though, and that's a very important one that I always have heard when typical new customers that have no idea about AI. So what does this then make, let's say, machine learning or AI rather than a rules-based approach? You know, could I not say, okay, I have 120 variables and, you know, I take a, a brand name XYZ, you know, outcome, you know, 120 values. What, what does this make AI? Just a quick correction. The 120 value is not the number of, of features or number of variables. It's the number of numbers. So the, the number, number of, of numbers. Okay. Yeah, exactly. So that, that's what's like the total number of numbers in the data set. Very good. And maybe they represent whatever, only five or 10 variables like gas pressure, exactly. so it position, was, and two or three other ones. This was representing uh, three variables and three and three kind of feedback from... Very good. Yeah, from, from the machine operator. Sorry, that sounds even more to the way that, you know, I or we, my colleagues were doing it, you know, and have, have been doing it since then for a long time. So, uh, so very good. But nevertheless... What does that approach, is it then AI and how, what is the difference with a rule, rules base? You know, like, you know, I just take a brand, I put in the variables. Definitely. So there is, of course, uh, a big debate about what is AI, what is machine learning, etc. cetera. Uh, let, let's not get into that, but can definitely talk about the difference between a rules-based approach and, and AI. So a rules-based approach, the way that I would imagine this, is similar, let's say, to what the machine operator might, might do in, in his or her head. So, for example, you're, you're cutting a part, you're, you're looking at the part, and you're seeing that uh, with, with a given gas pressure and cutting speed, you get this or that much uh, burr on, on the underside of the part. Then this person might try to increase the velocity while keeping the gas constant and then look at, at how well this behaves. And then they have a kind of connection in their head about what is the effect uh, or how, let's say, velocity and the gas pressure kind of connect with each other. Or they know about the focus position. So they have some rules of thumb of where the focus position should be depending on, on the width of the part. Um, and then if I want to add more heat to the part, then I will go a little bit slower. If I want, if I don't want the part to get that hot, then I might go faster. Um, so these are the kind of rule-based where I have some knowledge about the process and I can, I can understand what's the connection between the different variables. Uh, the difference from that to AI is that uh, our AI doesn't have, at least not yet, this uh, understanding of if I want to add more heat to the part, then I need to maybe go more slowly. Or if I want to reduce that amount of heat, then I just go faster over the surface. The AI kind of learns these connections by by building a kind of... The way that I help uh, our customers picture it is we say the AI builds a kind of cartographic map of this uh, machine that we want to optimize. So for for three, four, five um, settings, that's very difficult to figure out. But if you only have, let's say, two, and you have the cutting velocity and you have the gas pressure, then the AI can try different points on this map and figure out the height of those points. And then uh, the AI try, tries to look for the highest peak of, uh, of this map. 
Okay, sounds good. So, sure. But I think it's important that we always talk about, because in our own brains, you have it clear, I have it relatively clear. And what I hear is a confirmation of, you know, the rules based is I have an algorithm, I feed it with data, and out comes a decision. And I believe what we, what you do, you know, machine learning, and I'm going to come to that as a question approach is I have data algorithms look for patterns and you know out comes a decision so if that is in my words how you do it and in your words is that what you use machine learning can you talk a little bit about it not too deeply what is the kind of approach you have there uh, how does it relate to gauss or to bayesian um, algorithms yeah so what we're using is i would say very advanced version of bayesian optimization where Bayesian optimization is kind of an advanced version of design of experiments. Um, the whole idea is that you run experiments on the machine to start to understand this connection between the settings of the machine and how well they perform. Uh, so you have some, some objective that you want to optimize. It can be uh, cutting with a better quality, can be uh, cutting faster, can be a, a mix of all of those objectives. And the AI is trying basically to understand the connection between the machine settings and this objective. For, for Bayesian optimization, you build Gaussian process model or Bayesian model that the difference between this and the usual neural network models is that it's not only outputting a prediction for each, for each settings that, that you put in, but it gives you the expectation. So how uh, large, for example, how good the quality and how good the model expects the quality to be for given settings, but also um, how uncertain the model is about this prediction. And that also gives kind of the, the baseline on what what base is about, right? If you can say one, two words maybe on that for those uh, listeners that do not know the details. Also in combination, maybe you can, we're talking about, you know, statistics and how they are still the baseline for all of our AI base. So base was a priest, 1780, I believe, and in my words, but please correct, um, in the end is base about the probability. You talk about the expectation for, you know, B happening in case that you know that A is available. Uh, how would you put it, just for those that do not know the details? Yeah, I, th I think a uh, relatively easy way to understand Bayesian optimization is that you're building a, this model that gives you an, an ex expectation and uncertainty. So when you ask the model for these settings, what can I expect, how, how good the quality uh, should be, it won't just give you a number, but it will also give you whether or not it's, it's certain about it. So when I ask the AI about a, a given point of, on this, let's say, 2D map, if it has seen something in close to this point where, I, where I'm asking, the AI will tell me, yeah, I, I expect this to be the quality here to be this or that good. And I'm pretty sure about this uh, prediction. And if I'm asking the AI about some points that where we haven't explored this area of, of the settings at all, then the AI will say, I don't know, this could be really good or this could be really bad. Um, and this is really what's guiding the AI in how to decide where to try on the machine. So where it hasn't seen anything, then the AI might decide to explore 
and and sometimes the AI tries things that uh, the machine operator would never think about trying, sometimes with very good results. And sometimes the AI goes towards things that it has already experienced, let's say, because it knows that, that in this direction, there are good settings to be found. Good. What I recall base is like, I look outside, it looks uh, blue sky, the chance that when I walk outside, it's warm is uh, very high. Um, if I look out, I think I've heard towards the end of the week and it's, uh, I look out, it's very, very dark. The chance that it's going to be cold is, um, is higher. But I'm not the, the specialist. I'm not a mathematician or a statistician. So in case this should not be correct, I'll hear from you. So do, do you offer like a like off-the-shelf solution? Do you need to go to your customer and, you know, as we're talking, you know, data, do they first need to give you like whatever, three months, uh, six months worth um, of data before you can help them? So the way that we do it is uh, we initially we were going to the customer because we wanted to be next to the machine and, and get this experience. Of course, that, that's not very scalable. If every time that I want to optimize the machine, I have to travel for a few hours. So we moved to doing these optimizations remotely. And we don't even need to be behind the wheel uh, each time. Uh, one of our customers, we, uh, we optimize the machine with them once with the machine operator. The machine operator got the idea, then he got access to our software and he ran 25 more optimizations very successfully all on his own. Okay, so again, do you need from each specific customer data from the past, whatever, three months that they have been running? Or is that as soon as you have the data from one brand, from one you know, complete line of the brand, can you use that for any of that brand machines in the world? Yeah, if, if the data uh, is available, then this is great. So if, if the machine operator has already tried different things on the machine and documented them, uh, then we're very happy to get it. In most cases, either the, the machine operators are just using the default settings or the, of the machine, or if they optimize the, the settings to, to run the machine on their own, they usually just have the last values, kind of the, the best values that they found. So usually there isn't any uh, data available for us, uh, but we also don't really need it for, for most of the optimizations that, that we have run, uh, where we kind of uh, demonstrate the software to potential clients. We just start with a, with a clean AI without any data on the machine. And then within usually 10 experiments, the AI already gets to know the machine and can deliver really, really good settings. Once these potential clients become actual clients and they uh, run four or five optimizations on the machine, then the AI already has enough data to actually start providing really, really good settings within one, two or three experiments on the machine. Okay, good. So you don't come with past data, you, you run it from actual data while you're optimizing. Exactly, yeah. And optimi optimizing goes against what against... You know, if we talk about, we didn't talk at the beginning, if we talk OEE, I mean, what, what specifically are you then, you know, optimizing for during those optimization cycles? Is it like, you know, you're cutting uh, metal, so you want to know that, that the quality is as good as, or you want to know that the, the amount of, you know, metal that comes out after a certain time is optimized, or what, what are the typical 
uh, optimizations against. So our, our software is quite flexible in, in kind of helping the, the customer find better settings for their machines. Um, so the, what what better setting settings mean uh, depends on on the customer. But usually, uh, for most of the customers, this means I want to cut with a good quality as quickly as possible. So users of laser cutting machines, they usually uh, cut more than one material. That's why we have different optimizations. So they might have they might cut steel, stainless steel, aluminum of different thicknesses. Uh, we have optimized everything from 0.15 millimeters to 25 millimeters. And most of them just want to cut as fast as possible with a good quality. In some cases, uh, they care about reaching a certain, let's say, level of, of quality because with that level, they can skip using the next machine on the line, kind of skip one step of the process uh, and go directly to the, to the machine after that. Some companies care about conserving resources, so they might want to use less, uh, less cutting gas. So then we help them also reduce the amount of gas that, that they use for cutting. Can, can machines learn from each other at all? Definitely. So this, this is one of the benefits or, let's say, unfair advantages that an AI has on, on human machine operators is that our AI is able to learn from, from thousands of machines around the world. Uh, and usually a machine operator will learn from, from one or two machines that their, uh, their company has. You call it unfair advantage, interestingly. <laughs> as long as we consider, you know, digitization, machine learning, artificial intelligence to be, you know, as a tool in our hands. But you mean unfair, yeah, because you put it in relationship to a human. Uh, I think it's important that, that exactly, you know, this person, you know, the person who's running the machine, whoever is using the machine, you know, then uh, understands it. Uh, tell us who is running it and uh, and how do they then eventually react? Uh, you know, are they typically afraid at the beginning and then a week later they call you up and say they're happy or how does that work? Yeah, I, I think we have seen quite a variety of reactions from, from different machine operators that, that uh, have used our software. There are, of course, those that say we're experts on the machine. We have decades of experience uh, finding synthetics for, for the machines and usually our ai is let's say about as good sometimes a little bit better uh, than than those experts but there isn't that much more that our ai can do for the company if they actually have really really good machine operators uh, but but as we know this is uh, this is a problem for a lot of companies that they're not able to hire there are just not enough expert machine operators in the market. And then for a lot of the machine operators that, that we have spoken to, they're actually quite happy to use the AI because it, it takes away this kind of uh, complex task of figuring out what are the right settings and kind of this responsibility of finding the right settings for the machine because kind of a, a, a big part of the performance of the machine depends on whether or not the machine operator is finding really good settings. Right. So it gives them an additional tool and they feel uh, a lot more powerful, so to speak. That sounds good. I think that's great. I mean, in a country like where we are calling from, we'll get to that in a moment as far as your company is concerned. But, you know, in Germany, it's very, very difficult yeah, uh, to find, you know, uh, the right humans doing uh, the right job. Right. So there's... Another interesting point uh, for for this interaction with the machine operators is we have seen 
similar to what happened, uh, you know, with, with AlphaGo and like expert Go players that they started learning new ways of, of playing Go uh, by looking at what the AI was doing. We're also starting to see these kind of things with, uh, with the machine operators where since the AI is, sometimes goes crazy with the kind of things that, that it can try because it's just limited by whatever the machine operator, kind of the, the ranges of values of settings that the machine operator lets the AI try. The machine operators also uh, start to become a little bit more secure uh, in, in trying different settings or, or yeah, they, they get some new ideas of, oh, I never thought about actually trying this combination. And then they can kind of continue exploring around the, the settings that the AI already found. That's very interesting. You make that uh, reference to AlphaGo. Yeah, I've been writing about it for the last couple of weeks and play a bit of chess. And I know that in the world of chess, but also in, in the world of Go, yeah, the reference you make that, as you say, you know, the players, um, you know, start looking more and more towards the AI and, uh, and, and then not in a, as you say, not in a, oh shit, that was it for humankind. No, not at all. Let's look at what we can learn. And then, you know, you, you see, let's say, let's say chess players play certain moves that, have not been played in the past until you know the um, the AI came up with it. So uh, where does your solution run on an SPS on a notebook tablet? Um, yeah, the, the the very first versions they were running on my laptop, but for a while they had, we have already kind of uploaded to a, or de deployed it to the cloud. Um, so this this is now accessible for for any client uh, as long as they have a browser enabled device. This can be a, a laptop, tablet, or even the machine itself. Uh, they can get access to the to the web interface of of our AI. Now, not everybody likes that. Or I mean, do they still think, oh, you know, can you not please give me something to run on whatever my SPS or my or you know, I assume in every laser cutting and other machines there's some kind of you know processing unit inside that they would like to run it on or yes there, there are some companies uh, that uh, that have these kind of concerns where they want to have an, an on-premise solution but really lately we uh, we stopped kind of hearing about these concerns i'm, I'm not really sure if, if we changed something in our messaging <laughs> or it kind of just went away uh, but we used we used to hear these issues of mm, no, we're not sure about using a cloud solution or we're not sure about the AI kind of getting our data and our know-how. And then at, at some point it kind of disappeared. And I, I guess I guess people uh, kind of figured out that this is the way of the future, starting adapting to it. Yeah, and I've always been very careful for many, many years that I felt like guilty <laughs> of sharing with uh, our listeners. But uh, I, I guess it's a combination. Yeah, I assume so. There are still going to be certain companies, those that have, know exactly what they're doing, that maybe are still a bit careful. But you can then always still consider, you know, solutions like federated learning, right, if you ever still run into it in the near future. So I think you did tell us a little bit about your Bayesian, uh, Gaussian, Bayesian optimization, Gaussian approach. What about your development environment for those listeners interested in that? Can you tell us a bit about that? Was that you just mentioned on your uh, laptop? What, what were the kind of tools for building your solution? Yeah. So uh, <laughs> there is, of course, a, a pretty big stack. Um, and as a uh, as a founder of a startup, you, you need to be able to wear different hats and, and know different different technologies. 
Um, I, I cannot say that what we're using now is, is what we will continue using in the future as, as we scale, but just like my, my development environment, I personally uh, like uh, Visual Studio Code, kind of been stuck with it for a few years now already. Uh, we use a lot of Python uh, for the development. We use some open source libraries uh, as well. And then for, for deployment, um, Right now we're using uh, DigitalOcean just because it's very easy to, to get started with small service. We might move to one of the big ones once we start to scale. Very good. And uh, finally, I thought I was looking on your website and I saw that you're a Umati, Umati partner. Can you tell us a little bit about that if you're using whatever, OPC UA or what, what that means? Definitely. So I mentioned before that uh, our strategy is going to, to the customers and helping the customers as quickly as possible. So right now, connecting to the machines and, and getting data from, from the machines, for example, reading the exact definition of the machine, which, uh, which laser they have inside, uh, how, uh, what's the power of this laser, when was the machine bought or when was the machine repaired, all the different settings that uh, that we may optimize or not optimize kind of making sure for example that the machine operator didn't make a mistake when when copying the setting suggestion from our ai to the machine um, all of these things we could do it more easily if we had access to the machine but of course each machine has a different connection different language different way that they might share or in some cases they don't want to share this data um, so one of the things that we really loved about this Umati initiative is that it would allow us to talk to all of these different machines from different manufacturers using one language, one specification. Um, this would, of course, make it much, much more easily for, for us as a startup and for many other startups uh, to be able to work with different machines. Yeah, the uh, president of the OPC Foundation, Stefan Hoppe, would call it an architecture. I just saw it because, yes, I, I do a podcast. We do, Robert and I do a podcast with uh, Stefan for the OPC. And, and, and actually, he did an interview with me. Normally, I do the other way around. But because I'm the guy who knows a little bit about AI. And yes, I am very, um, what should I say, very impressed. And, and I would say if you have... You know, I typically have been saying if you have 12 months, in your case, I would say if you have 12 days or if you have 12 hours, I don't know. But whatever, let's stick with the, you know, other solutions, which may be a small, you know, POC takes uh, whatever, 12 weeks. Now you're, you're typically busy eight, nine weeks, you know, finding data, cleaning the data. It's typically always the 80% of the data cleansing for the data scientist, right? And then I say, okay, if you come in and exactly what you say, if you come to your customer and they have, for example, the Umati OPC UA-based information model, you can start immediately, you know, minute number one, you click on it and you look at, okay, what do we need for, you know, whatever, laser, laser cutting machine. And you can, you can almost start like that. So I've said like it's... Um, OPC UA uh, allows for a flying start into, uh, into data science. So let's come to a close here and tell us a little bit more about your company, your team. Uh, is it just you, somebody else? Where are you? Are you looking for colleagues? If so, do they need to bring specific qualifications? Um, yeah, so most, uh, most of what has happened with GaussML has been uh, pushed uh, by me. There were some other people helping along the way. And right now we're 
position where the company is starting to have enough traction that we're able to grow. So we are now starting to look for a chief sales officer and a chief technology officer to both, both expand uh, our uh, sales and our technology. Yeah, what I can say about GaussML is where we stand now is probably very different from where we're going to be in, in a couple of years. Um, right now, we don't have really, as I said, a, a direct connection to the machine that is part of our strategy to be able to work with many different machines. Uh, but we definitely want to start connecting more and more with the machine. I recently saw a very nice slide um, on, a, on a keynote presentation about kind of the evolution of technology. And you had a broom, a vacuum cleaner, and a Roomba, where you had kind of the, the manual work, kind of uh, automatic work where the vacuum cleaner helps you do the job. And then the autonomous work where you basically don't have to do the job anymore. Uh, because the, the Roomba takes care of it. And this is a little bit how we see the technology these days. So you have the manual work of the machine operator setting up the machine. We're kind of uh, automating it a little bit with uh, with our solution optimizer already because we help the machine operator do this job uh, in a much easier way. Um, and in the future, we see this kind of autonomous capabilities where our AI has already learned how these different technologies, different processes work. And we can create possibilities that today are, are just not available. For example, when doing uh, laser cutting, when you, you cut a really large sh uh, sheet of metal, when you start cutting, uh, you might, uh, this uh, piece of metal will be cold. But as you cut more and more pieces on this, uh, on this metal, uh, it starts to get warm. And then maybe by the time you reach the end of the sheet, the settings that you were using at the beginning are already not working as, as well as they were in the beginning. And being able to change these settings on the fly, depending on the temperature of the metal, is something that is not available nowadays, but would be something that our AI would, would definitely be able to do once we are connected to the machine. Good. You kind of implicitly answered, you still can, in addition, if you want to. Also, my question that was going to be about, you know, how do you see the status of AI um, in industry in Germany, Europe, relative to, say, USA, China, and how is con that going to change in five, ten years? So one thing you say is going to move towards more autonomous solutions. I would agree. And as far as that, I always say only uh, the human is uh, autonomous. All others are, you know, let's say, maybe fully automated, but not more than that. So what I'm saying is like, for me, it's still important that still a human pushes a button somewhere uh, before autonomous solutions uh, will start. But you want to add something there as a, as a close statement? Yeah, what I can say is we definitely see the factory becoming more and more autonomous, more and more machine and fewer and fewer operators as, as we move forward. That's why we were already kind of positioning ourselves and, and thinking about how our AI will work when we're not getting this kind of uh, subjective feedback from from the operator and we're building it so it's possible to connect different kinds of, of feedback also kind of using an api where you can just connect for example other sensors of the machine to provide feedback to our ai so we, we definitely see this moving towards kind of smart factory uh, or, or smart factory of the future where our ai will be a kind of smart component in making decisions for how the machine should be running and kind of getting less and less um, input 
from from the machine operators. Very good. Jonathan, thank you very much. Uh, listeners that want to get in touch with you after having heard this uh, wonderful uh, approach that uh, that you have, um, they can contact you best on LinkedIn, uh, Jonathan Spitz. Jonathan with T-H-A-N and Spitz, the German way, S-P-I-T-Z. Uh, otherwise, if you, dear listeners, uh, have any questions or comments, uh, you can always contact uh, Robert at uh, kipodcast.de. Sounds a bit weird. It's the German email or myself. You can contact me, Peter Seberg. That's all E's, Peter and Seberg, S-E-E-B-E-R-G at LinkedIn as well. Yeah, I'm very glad that you've stayed with us so far and looking forward to have you with us again next time. Jonathan, thank you very uh, much and have a great day. Thank you, Peter. You too.